0: Welcome to the Jewish Diasporist, a podcast exploring the political, social, and cultural implications of life in diaspora. We are two of your hosts, Jordan and Ben Yanowitz. Today, we welcome the hosts of the Making Menches podcast, Jesse and Alana,
1: with whom we share a belief in the centrality of education and dialogue in confronting the
0: intersecting injustices of our days. While I wasn't present for today's interview, A couple weeks ago, Jesse and Alana were kind enough to welcome us onto their podcast, helping us build bridges and foster a culture of critical and constructive discourse across the Jewish left.
1: Today, we continue that. Like all conversations between Jews and leftists alike, there were as many, if not more, opinions as voices present. After all, two Jews, three opinions. Today, mainstream public discourse is extremely polarized, and too often driven by a desire to emphasize difference in order to appear the most correct or the most radical.
0: This is the second episode in an emerging partnership between the Jewish Diasporist and Making Menches, which we hope to grow into a wider coalition of left-wing Jewish media. In
1: our last episode, they interviewed us about our own political journeys and perspectives.
0: In today's episode, Zach and Ben interviewed Jesse and Alana long-time Jewish activists and organizers based in New York City, and discussed many topics building towards a productive synthesis of anti-Zionist and diasporist Jewish politics. While some push to excise anti-Zionism from other forms of Jewish politics, in this dialogue, we appreciate
1: the diverse perspectives we all bring and the importance of challenging and developing our own ideas.
0: After all, the long tradition of Jewish debate emphasizes the truth of Eluv Elu, These and those, both and. We need to reckon with both the importance of diasporic Judaism and decolonial politics, and that depends on our ability to hold multiple truths at the same time.
1: We hope you enjoy the interview and join us for this political journey. We are
2: beautiful people.
1: Jesse, Alana, we're really excited to be sitting down with you again. We're really stoked to be able to collaborate with you guys and to be able to really learn about what you've done and how where your Making Menches podcast has come from, both personally and ideologically, and the work you guys do beyond the podcast as well. I know you guys have done a lot of stuff in terms of on the ground, creating spaces, both for ritual and for activism. And I think that's really beautiful to be able to bring those together. We're really excited to hear about that today. So just to get started, we'd really love to hear about your personal backgrounds and what really led you to start this work with the Making Menches podcast.
3: Alana and I grew up together in the same community at a synagogue, a Reform synagogue in upstate New York. And we were apart by two years in school. And the preschool that we went to was called Menchmakers. When Alana and I reconnected in 2020, around like July-ish, We were reconnecting because that synagogue had gotten a new rabbi. I had been away from the synagogue for a while. I wasn't very involved in what was going on politically, but Alana still had connections there. And I reached out because I saw the Not Free to Desist letter that had been published by a variety of individuals at the time, and now Not Free to Desist is its own organization, demanding that synagogues and Jewish institutions take several steps Towards anti-racism. Some of those were structural, about curriculum, and all of these other things. Some of them were like very practical about finances and who's on the board and composition in that sense. And while I knew I didn't have any influence over who's on a board of any synagogue, I said education-wise, we could be doing a lot better. So I reached out to the synagogue and got in touch with Alana that way. And we started with anti-racist workshops for that home congregation on things as basic as microaggressions. What is racism? Mm -hmm. How are we complicit in this as Jews, as white Jews? It was very challenging in a variety of ways. And it taught us a lot, even though we had education experience, facilitation experience. And from there, we developed Jewish anti-oppressive education models for a variety of communities that just expanded over the years.
4: That covers our genesis, if you will. And I think it's really evolved. I think something that's important to note is that when we initially started doing work as making mentions in 2020, we made an intentional choice uh, at the time to not make mention of Zionism or Israel in our work because we knew that if we both knew that we were anti-Zionist, we were already well situated in our anti-Zionist politic, but we knew if that is the lens through which we approached the anti-racist work, we would not be able to reach our home community because they are so entrenched in Zionism, as many white American Jewish communities are. We decided, honestly, less than a year after we began doing those workshops that it wasn't really in alignment with our politics to not make a mention And that, of course, by omitting our politics, it was the same as being complicit. And I think it was May of 2021 when we put out a statement being very clear about our position on anti-Zionism and how we felt about the existence of the state of Israel, which is that we don't feel that it should exist. And our work changed significantly after that. Because as we had initially predicted, the communities that we were aiming to work with no longer wanted to work with us. And I think that really started us on the path of the work we do now, in which we are creating explicitly anti-Zionist Jewish ritual and spiritual community, as well as Jewish education through the lens of anti-Zionism.
1: I think that's really interesting how you shift over time. We're really focused on racism first. And I think it's really important to understand the way that these things relate to each other. When we think about racism, it's often thought about just in saying slurs or like in a really interpersonal way. But I think when we think about how racist worldviews work and how structural and institutional racism function, it's really important to draw those parallels. And I think there was a UN resolution back in 1975, UN resolution 3379 which actually explicitly said Zionism is racism. And of course, that was actually revoked in the 90s as part of the process leading to the Oslo Accords, which was supposed to lay the groundwork for a two-state solution, which we know didn't ever come to fruition. But I think it's important to draw those parallels. And when you did announce your more over anti-Zionist politics, did, how did you draw that parallel? What was the way that you framed that in the work you'd done previously around racism or anti-racism?
4: we were pretty explicit. The statement that we made is actually still up on our website. I'm trying to think back to it. But I think when we came out with our statement, we were very clear about the connection between Zionism and racism and how we couldn't in good conscience be promoting and educating on anti-racism while not making mention of Zionism and the racism that is inherent in Zionism. And we made that connection very clear. Obviously, that did not resonate with everyone we had previously been working with. I think bridging that gap is something that remains the struggle of breaking liberal Zionists out of their liberal Zionist mold is trying to figure out how to push people beyond that.
1: Yeah, I also think it's interesting going back to the idea of worldviews when we think about what a racist worldview actually looks like. I've actually, in my own historical research, looking at 19th century racism, which they didn't call racism. They just had a scientifically understood concept of race, which was really interesting to realize when you think about Zionism and the way that it actually reifies, reproduces racial anti-Semitism to say that Jews are a separate race that is can never truly Integrate or really like belong within the nation states we live, and it really ends up reproducing that by allowing anti-Semites to say, "Oh, actually, Israel is their homeland. We should just send all the Jews there." And that's like really inherent in Christian Zionism, but also really implicit within other Jewish forms of Zionism as well.
3: Yeah, I think what's also really interesting to know, and I love your research, Ben, because it just ties together all of these movements that feel so aligned in the persecution of oppressed peoples across the globe is that we had previously spoken out about how anti-Semitism is deeply rooted in American tradition. And it's funny because we had posted that blog and nobody cared. <laughs> it was like, we were, that's what we expected when we posted the one about Israel as well. But that the inspiration for gas chambers and the Holocaust came from American gas chambers, like things like that, that the Holocaust was deeply rooted in the model that the American genocide of Native peoples had provided for Hitler. Like Hitler was like, oh, just like you guys did this, that's what we're going to do. So there's a lot of blame on Europe for anti Semitism specifically. And we were seeking out ways to identify how anti Semitism was already very deeply baked into the culture of anti Black oppression and racism in America. And so that fits right in with what you're talking about as well but also we were really careful in the beginning not to misconstrue the original intent of the organization on whose points we had founded our organization. Like We were really clear we wanted to give more voice to these organizations that were putting out anti-racist statements. And so by changing directions and saying we're anti-Zionist when that original organization hadn't been saying they were anti-Zionist, we felt like we were co-opting their movement somehow. And that was a huge struggle we had. And knowing that we as two white people trying to say we're doing anti-racist work to misconstrue the original intent of Jews of color speaking out about racism, we were really nervous about doing real damage and harm to people speaking out about their lived experiences. I think part of the connections we started to make were through campaigns like hashtag drop the ADL and other things that were exposing how Israel trains police officers in America that then murder black and brown people. and ways that we could prove this connection between Zionism and these hateful Israeli policies informing American racism that kind of strengthened our resolve that it was okay to speak out about this because... It is unfortunate that, that happens a lot in movement building, that one organization co opts another's message and then speaks over them and erases the original intent. So I just wanted to like base that a little deeper and definitely was our fear of being rejected from the Jewish community, which did happen, but it was also based in trying to create an ethical movement that honored the original intent of the not free to desist letter.
4: And- I think within that vein, something that we all need to, that it's it's such a nuanced line to toe. I just think identity politics gets really complicated. And the idea that because we were focusing on the voices of Jews of color, that our politic had to mirror them, their politic directly, or that is the best politic to be at. Is something to push back against because, of course, someone's identity doesn't automatically mean that all of their politic is the best or what everyone should be working from. There are people of all different racial and ethnic backgrounds who are Zionist, who are racist, and I think that is important to grapple with. I think that's something that we still grapple with, but especially within that moment, we were really trying to figure out how to both recognized that we were moving away from the original intent of Jews of color and the statement that they were making, and that we felt very strongly about the importance of going beyond that.
5: We've mentioned a little bit already the discussion about the idea of of racism being an inherent part of Zionism, and it's something that we wanted to focus on a bit. Because just as there are very many different ways in which Zionism is interpreted by different people, likewise this is the case with anti-Zionism. There are many different approaches to anti-Zionist politics that come from a variety of different ideological perspectives, whether it be the view of socialist internationalism or Palestinian nationalism itself, to even people like the recent member of parliament in Poland, Gregor Braun, who put out the the Hanukkah in parliament and called Hanukkah a a satanic Talmudist celebration. He says he considers himself an anti-Zionist. He believes that he calls Israel the the state in the the Jewish state in Palestine. So, when people say they're anti-Zionist, just in an abstract idea, a lot of people, understandably, are not exactly too sure of what that is. I think both me and Ben very clearly we don't believe that anti-Zionism is inherently anti-Semitism. We want we don't want to support, for example, the view that recently the U.S. Congress passed and that is unfortunately too common and and far too uh, lacking in nuance. But when you say that you're an anti-Zionist podcast, what do you mean by that? How does it relate to your Jewish identities? And also you said that in terms of that you don't believe that the state of, of Israel should exist. Do you have something that's more of a positive vision that relates to that? Because a lot of the times on politics as well, something that's found quite common, and personally I think is a limiting factor for a lot of Palestine solidarity efforts, there's a lot of talk about anti-Zionism, anti-occupation, anti-apartheid, anti-Israel. But what's the pro? Do you, do you have that? That's a very sort of nuance. But I think this is an important conversation, these are important questions to be have when we discuss these issues.
4: I think something that grounds our politic and also grounds my politic personally is I'm always working from a place of abolition. My politics are inherently abolitionist. And I think something that people can and often do misconstrue about abolitionist politics is that it's all about destroying or systems, but not about the fact that it is about building and creating revolution of any kind, Kwame Hitaryan says, is about creating. That is what revolution is creation. I think oftentimes revolution, whether it be in the form of abolition of prisons and policing, in the form of abolition of nation states, unfortunately comes with an element of destruction that is inherent to the creation. And that maybe is my personal politic, but I think I speak for a lot of revolutionary folks when I say that, in that we unfortunately can never pushback against the people who hold power without an element of destruction, because that is how they maintain power is through state-sanctioned violence. And so in order to move towards this world of Olam Haba, the world that we are dreaming of, there are systems that need to be destroyed. And within that vein, I think that is what informs our anti, as you say, Zionism, which yes, is in opposition to Zionism, is in in favor of the destruction of Zionism. But I think something that is essential that I I think we communicate fairly frequently is that for us, while our anti-Zionism is about being in favor of the destruction of the state of Israel, it is also in favor of the creation of a rich diasporic Jewish life that does not rely on an apartheid state committing a genocide to uplift Judaism and uplift all different kinds of Jewish culture and spirituality and ritual. And so I think for us, it's very much both and, like the both and being, yes, we are anti these things and we do push for the destruction of these things, but out of that destruction and within that destruction, we are pushing for this creation.
3: Yeah, that was beautifully articulated, Alana. I just wanted to add the definition of Zionism. Sometimes people try to be like, but what about religious Zionism? Or what about a hypothetical? What about in prayers? What about back to Jerusalem? I heard a really great Dvar around, do we really dream of Going back to slaughtering animals at the central temple in Jerusalem. No, of course not. Even in a metaphorical sense, I do not yearn for a homeland that existed in an ancient time that I cannot connect to. And so I think, like, when I say I don't believe in the state of Israel, I also don't believe in a Jewish homeland. I personally don't feel any connection to that land. And we've talked about this in in different capacities on our podcast. I've never traveled there, I have no family there. So it's a different situation than a lot of. American Jews, I think, but I have no hang ups when saying I'm an anti-Zionist and I don't believe in a Jewish homeland. I understand th- from my readings about Zionism, that Zionism developed out of a fear-based ideology and an attempt to solve a problem of Jewish presence in other countries. And I know we could talk a lot about solutions to that and socialism and internationalism, but I think at the root of it, there's nothing redeeming about Zionism because Zionism is based on our trauma and fear and the desire to persecute others the way we've been persecuted. And that's just something I can't redeem. So I think that's why we stand so staunchly in the an anti-Zionist position because we don't caveat it for anyone's like feelings around Zionism because we know it's rooted in such racism, fear, and, and hatred.
1: I think that's really important to emphasize. And I also think it's interesting that you haven't actually been there as well because I think there is something in the history that I think is interesting where in the 19-teens and 20s, you did have people saying... You're anti Zionist so long as you don't actually want to physically go there. There were people that were like non Zionist or anti Zionist that might have sympathized with the desire to create at least like a Jewish presence or a, a community that felt strong and attached there and safe. But it actually wasn't until the 1940s with the Biltmore program where they actually explicitly made the goal of Zionism to be the creation of a Jewish state. Before that, it was a more abstract creation of a national home for the Jewish people in historic Palestine. There, this has a really big political implications, whether it was just we want to create a home for Jews to be able to feel safe and like they have a place they can go if they are persecuted, which was always the rationale for Zionism. It was always anti-Semitism is inevitable. So we have to be able to have a place where we can go and be isolated from the Gentiles, the non-Jews, so that we can not have to suffer from this inevitable racism, which I disagree. I think all socialists tend to disagree that racism is inevitable. It's socially produced. It comes from specific class dynamics, but it's not inevitable. And we really push back against that. But I also think when we focus too much on Zionism as the desire to have a Jewish state, we actually write out a portion of Zionists that I think do have some redeemable factors, perhaps. And this for Hashomer Hatzair and the Labor left, specifically the left wing of the labor Zionist movement, which was not in favor of a Jewish state and were for binationalism, and the desire to have real substantive Jewish Palestinian cooperation and creating solidarity. And frankly, like Martin Buber really understood this as a way to actually really live the mission, the so called like Jewish mission of actually being a priest among the nations to show that we can have a Jewish nationalism, which is the language he would use that is not grounded in a self-centered nationalism, but was about how Jews relate to non-Jews. And in doing that, he argued that we could actually play a large role in actually going beyond a nationalist framework. And I do wonder if anti-Zionism on its own, perhaps, can end up flattening that a little too much, perhaps, because I think it has the risk of just saying that Jews don't have a right to be there at all, and not even being able to really imagine how Jews there, of course, in its current form, it is a settler colonial nation state. It's not really anything that I think can be redeemed. But when we think deeper about how might a Jewish presence be able to be there that is actually in solidarity, what we would say is a diasporous community that recognizes our Jewish roots as intimately bound with how we relate to the other, to the gear, the other that lives among us, I think that's why for me, there's a little bit of a hang up sometimes with the way I think about it. Because as Zach was saying, there is a lot of conceptions of anti-Zionism that can just be like, all the Jews have to leave. They're all colonizers. They have no right to be there whatsoever. And as, as internationalists, I'm like, no, that, that's honestly, that's nationalism. That is not internationalism. That's not really trying to transcend the world of nation states that we live in, but instead only just reinforcing it with a different type of nationalism. So I just wanted to add that because I think it's very important to think about what lessons we learn from Zionism, because like several years ago, I was more thinking of myself as a post-Zionist rather than an anti-Zionist. Now, I'm, am I an anti-Zionist? Am I a non-Zionist? I, I'm not really sure. It seems so vague sometimes and detached from the actual struggles. And like when I was in Palestine in May with the Center for Jewish Nonviolence Delegation, I met a lot of Jews that were actually living there explicitly so that they could participate in the struggle for Palestinian liberation more thoroughly. And of course, if you go back to our episode seven, we had people that actually immigrated there, and they were making the point that you can't be there without being somewhat complicit. But at the same time, if you are going to be there, you have a duty to really do everything you can to build solidarity with Palestinians and to really participate in the struggle to actually end occupation, end apartheid, and bring about a peace, a, a just future for all people between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea.
3: My pushback for this is in the ways that we wish to cling to Zionism are some of the ways that we, as white people, like to cling to whiteness and to find ways to absolve ourselves a little bit. And that's not to say that there aren't elements of a Zionist ideology that started in something that sounds redeemable, right? The idea of labor Zionism in the beginning, I always joke with a friend of mine, we joke, which Zionist would you have like accidentally fallen into if you were a young person in the early 1900s, right? Of course, we always would have fallen into it because we're Jewish leftists and they capitalized on that movement and made it so. But labor Zionism is absolutely attractive to young socialists. And I can absolutely see why it's interesting. I think we need to challenge ourselves to move beyond that though, and to extract that from our other politics, because there are parts of my politics that I've like really had to push against and really had to negotiate. Like for example, I'm in another group that was just called out for the urgency of whiteness and the fact that movements have to be built right now and everything has to be pushed right now because it's an emergency. And that's a really white centered movement tactic that actually alienates other people and it's ableist and it becomes racist in different ways. And I'm like, but it's urgent, but there's a genocide. So there's tensions within our politics. So I think we always have to negotiate and labor Zionism, while I understand the allure of having a Jewish Zionist labor movement in another time, I think it's we have to give up on certain things. For example, the Star of David, the Magan David, right? For some people, it's an emotional thing that's beautiful and they love wearing it or having it as a symbol on their synagogues. I feel after I've seen it branded into Palestinian people's foreheads, I think we give it up. I'm sorry, there's no redeeming it. It's been used as a tool of violence. I can't find any reason to redeem it. I think for me, we have to build new rituals and new meaningful spaces in ways that affirm anti-oppressive movements, rather than clinging to old things because they were rooted in the Jewish liberation ideology that turned bad. So I guess that's why I feel more, more comfortable saying I disavow Zionism entirely, because I think just the more we learn and the more we understand how our religion has been co-opted by other movements in such harmful ways, we have to abandon the parts of our tradition that uphold or affirm that oppression. And I know that can get tricky because there are things that uphold it and challenge it in the same Parsha or something. (laughs) I think it's a negotiation, but I do think there are ways we can abandon harmful parts of our religious practice or our tradition that That isn't like heresy and isn't abandoning Judaism.
4: I just want to highlight something that you said that I think was particularly astute. This idea that although maybe we felt something had value or there's a world in which something could have value, but that's not the reality that we live in right now. The reality that we live in right now is that Zionism has been weaponized and the Zionism that has really held on and taken off is the Zionism that. We see today playing out where we're on day 80, day 81 of genocide, and there is no end in sight somehow after the majority of the world is saying, What are you doing? I think it is our one task as Jewish people to push past the discomfort of leaving behind something that we once maybe held very dearly and seeing how. There is not a path in our current world where that can be done in the way maybe some of us envisioned and just being like, oh, I'm going to have to give that up and stick with the parts of Judaism that I know are not grounded in violence or I know are not producing violence. And I think that goes for any religious group or any cultural group. There are plenty of elements of Christianity, so many that have historically and presently been used to subjugate and oppress other groups of people, religious or ethnic, racial. But I think there are plenty of radical Christians who have moved past that and are able to identify with parts of Christianity that are not based in the oppression or subjugation of other people, or are not based in whiteness, really. And I think that we can do that too. And I think part of that starts with acknowledging the ways Judaism has been used and weaponized.
1: I think there's something Jesse said about if you thought about which Zionist you would have been in the 1920s or something is interesting, because was one in particular, A.D. Gordon, who when I was talking to Sarah Moon, who was one of the organizers of Mikna Paaretz, which we talked to in episode 10, she made the point, I think she grew up in one of the socialist Zionist youth movements, I believe it was Habonim Dror, and she emphasized that while she grew up as a socialist Zionist, she outgrew the Zionism and maintained the socialism, but at the same time was still drawing on the idea of A.D. Gordon, which was that like, there is a real spiritual value in connecting to the land and working the land. And that was a big part of labor Zionism early on except while she found that meaning of working the land, it wasn't bound to a specific place. It was just the practice of reconnecting to the places you live. So I think when we think about what we might be able to draw from the history of Zionism, it really is about taking what's good and really getting rid of the pieces that are really problematic, really come down to a blood and soil nationalism at the end of the day. And I also wonder, though, I've been dwelling on the concept of a homeland a lot recently, and I've really come to the idea that The homeland is the places we grew up and the places we live and the places that we really connect to. It's not really an abstract idea that's connected to a nation state. And it's really problematic when it is. But at the same time, when you think about that definition, you do have a lot of Israeli Jews that don't know any other land that is objectively their homeland because it's where they grew up. And it doesn't matter if it's extremely problematic because it's a settler colonial state. Frankly, we're in america that's also a settler colonial state and we have to be wrestling with that as well but it does make me wonder like when you think about the goals of an anti-zionism is it that jews have to leave that jews have to find another place to live or is it that jews fully renegotiate their relationship to the land and the peoples that live on it with them
5: yeah a lot of interesting points being made yeah for the record just on the topic of the star of david because because I choose to wear one, and, and for me, I, I think that there's a an importance as well all of the time in terms of contesting ideas and not letting them be taken over by these words, definitions, symbols. All of these things, meanings of symbols are not uh, inherent; they're not found under a rock. There isn't like a dictionary that is. The, the correct authority and what something necessarily is to be. It's if people use something in a certain way, then that's how it can be used. And there can be different meanings in different contexts. Something that recently came up about this, which is because I'm learning Yiddish, I think as well, one thing that's really struck me about it is that it has this connection about being the language of my ancestors, the language of a lot of different uh, movements that I feel very strongly uh, connected to. Um, And also the fact that it was never a language of state violence, really. It was always the language of, of the diaspora. And so I saw recently, a few months ago, there was some video of an Israeli brigade of members of the Haredi community that was using Yiddish in the West Bank. And more recently as well, there's a Yiddishist soldier who's not Haredi, but who is a, a, a tankist in an IDF brigade in the north near near Lebanon. And he was like explaining what the different equipment in the tank was in Yiddish. And there was something that made me really uncomfortable about that. This is something that I was just never used to this in this way and made me almost a little bit upset that this is how this language is is being used. I think the, the response to that is not to abandon the language because it was used in this way and there are some people that wish to use it in this way, but to contest the meaning and connections with this. We like to focus on the history as well, as Ben mentioned. We have this interesting point of in terms of when does Zionism become in its sort of mainstream a settler colonial project in that mainstream and a significant part of that is the decision on Hebrew labour in the 1920s in terms of separating economically from the local Arab population. But then of course what you mentioned about the reality that we live in in now as well and not just dwelling on what it was like a hundred years ago. A part of that reality is that there are now as Ben mentioned, there are millions of Jewish Israelis that have grown up there. Their parents have grown up there, their grand their grandparents have grown up. sometimes their families go even further back than that. And that's that is what they are, that is what they are used to. And the real question becomes, and also there are a lot of people in the diaspora, not all of us have connected families. Some of us do. But a lot of people who live in America, in, in France, in Argentina, they have families that live in Israel and have lived there for a very long time. Um, and so they do have that connection. You have connections to the people, to the culture, uh, to the religion spiritually. And I think the question becomes, can you separate those connections to communities, to language, to places that are important, not just in terms of Israeli history, but a place like Yad Vashem, for example, an important Holocaust uh, study area, can you try and disconnect it to the state apparatus of the, of the military, of the land administration, of the government? Of course, you can't do it completely, but can you imagine a future where that, those connections are, are are much, much more different than, than they are today? Um, and likewise, a lot of the people that do live in Israel today, they, they don't have the the, the the possibility of speaking what they would like to see life like in diaspora. Iraqi Jews don't have that possibility. Jews in, in in from Libya, from from Syria, from Yemen don't have that possibility. So in terms of those, in terms of that, there's comments to to be had on on all of this. In terms of diaspora, but we we would want to also very much hear about because you mentioned a little bit in terms of anti-Zionist, a Jewish religious ritual spaces and and practices that you've been involved in. Neither us are in New York, so we'd like to also be hear what the what the local scene in regards to to that is. Um, and, and what that what that looks like if we can learn something from it.
3: Thank you so much. I'm just going to take on a few things that have been mentioned and then I'm going to pass all the what is ritual-like in anti-Zionist New York groups to you because you have been spearheading all of that. Okay, I first want to go back to something Ben brought up about the Center for Jewish Nonviolence trip and Jews who have emigrated to Israel in order to disrupt to like settler violence and protect Palestinians on the ground as well as do work there. I personally am, and I'm not speaking for Alana at all, but I'm very torn about specifically American Jews who decide to immigrate to Palestine and put their bodies on the front lines between settlers and Palestinians, because while it is very important work directly There's so much work that needs to be done in American Jewish institutions to dismantle and disrupt them. And I'm always curious why people choose to leave that struggle and go put their bodies in between settlers and Palestinians. While we can talk about the merits of both, I just think it's an interesting choice to leave the diaspora and go to Israel for any reason. Second of all, back to what you're saying, Zach, about the Star of David. Absolutely. We all negotiate which symbols and rituals are meaningful to us, for example. It's horrifying to me to see the Star of David used on the Israeli flag, even because when I'm reading things about if Palestinians don't have the Israeli flag flying above their home, Zionists are going to come in and trash it or shoot people or abduct people or whatever, because they want to see allegiance to Israel. And that's happening in the West Bank, but has also happened throughout different parts of Palestine, throughout Israel's history. And to me, that is justification alongside all the other things that this symbol has become the site of some people's trauma. However, like when I saw the Hanukkah being put up in Gaza amongst the rubble, being like, happy Hanukkah, we conquered Gaza, which is just horrifying to me. I'm not saying throw out the entire Hanukkah, right? Because to me, that carries more significance. But for me, I am comfortable throwing out the Star of David. So I think we all negotiate that in different ways. And I can understand why some people have that attachment to the Star of David. The third point is I want to say that While I do understand the discussion about where do Israelis go and what do we do with Israelis, I think there is a forced kinship between Israelis and Jews of the diaspora that I struggle with for example jews in the diaspora are always expected to care about israelis and what israel does and i don't think israelis often really care about jews in the diaspora or what is happening to us so it's this kind of paternalistic thing we're supposed to do where we're supposed to look out for our little brothers in the middle east and like our cousins or whatever that while it might be some people's literal cousins i don't think as a people we are necessarily obligated to solve Israelis' problems for them. And in liberation movements, it's not the job of allies of the oppressed people to care about what happens to the oppressor after. Now, that's all to say I'm not advocating for a genocide of Israelis. I will never say that. I'm not going to let my words be misconstrued that way. I just think it's interesting that we redirect so many of our conversations about Palestinians and Palestinian liberation to like, but what about the Israelis when the Israelis that I have known and interacted with are very concerned about their state and their nation. And they're not really concerned about what's happening in like Brooklyn or like anti-Semitic attacks in Pittsburgh. That being said, I do think there's something in Israeli society that is, is akin to parts of American society that is very difficult to eradicate. And I don't have the answer to that. But to see American politicians advocate for basically killing trans kids or saying that Black people aren't humans or those types of things, and then to see Zionist leaders saying, like, eradicate all Palestinians, wipe them off the land, and I don't care. I don't care if it's a violation of human rights. Like, nobody cares, just destroy them. I don't know how you make peace with people like that. And that's just, like, my limitation as a leftist. So I don't know what leftist Israelis are going to do about that as much as I want to say that's like part of our struggle as anti-Zionist Jews, I don't have any skill set to take on Israeli society in that way, because that's not my struggle. So we all draw our lines differently, but I think that's
1: part of where I get to around theorizing about Israelis. There was one thing that Rabbi David Cooper brought up while I was in Palestine with him. He made the point that he thinks we should stop thinking about The Jews in Israel-Palestine as separate from diaspora, which I think was a really interesting point, because I think it reframes the way we think of diaspora politics to actually kind of decenter a specific homeland and more focus on the free flow of people across the land. Because when you look at the diasporic history of the 1880s to 1920s, which is the period I wrote my master's dissertation on. What allowed Jews to really live and actually thrive during this period is the fact that there wasn't a rigid border regime. This was actually constructed almost specifically in Britain and other places to actually reduce the flow of Jewish immigrants and refugees. And I think what Zach brought up that I think is significant is that we should think about how we can go back towards that sort of politics where people have the right to leave and the right to resettle in places where they do feel safe. And where they do find themselves having a sense of home, whether that's from ancestral connections or just from actually finding community. And this doesn't need to be, this shouldn't be exclusively Jewish community. But I think there is value in having that Jewish community in different places, whether it's in Iraq or Syria or Libya or Egypt, these places that have long Jewish histories. But because of Zionism, frankly, because you do have from 1948 in reaction to the creation of the state of Israel, expulsions of Arab Jews from their homelands. And we do I think as diasporists have to think deeply about what would it take and how can we bring forward and put forward a Jewish politic that goes beyond just anti-zionism but actually has a diasporism that says Jews do have a right to live in Israel Palestine as long as they're not oppressors and colonial overlords, but they also should have a right to live in peace wherever they want to live. And that is of course not just for Jews. That is should be a universal value that is, frankly, I think, important in this moment of rising anti-immigrant politics across the far right. And that is a huge part of fascism, neo-fascism in the modern day. And I think it's really important to think deeply about what it would take to go beyond this nationalist framework and, or anti-nationalist framework, which you could call anti-Zionism, a form of anti-nationalism, and actually go forward to center the experience of immigrants and understand what it would take or think deeply about the sort of politics we need to have in order to pressure all the countries of the world to accept refugees, accept the others, because especially with climate change and the growth of climate refugees that we're going to be seeing over the next decades, we really do need to have this sort of politics. And it's really important to ground that in our history as Jews, because it's a huge part of our modern history.
3: I absolutely agree with you about Prioritizing the experience of immigrants and refugees and those who need to leave their homelands to come to safety in other lands. I will push back a little bit that I think the creation of the Jewish homeland and the arrival of Zionist settlers in Palestine pushed a politic in the region that Jews, oh, you have a homeland now? Great, get out of here. And I think it goes back to the idea of. Zionism and Israel actually making Jews less safe and actually creating more opportunities for anti-Semitism in different countries. So while I do think that pointing out Arab anti-Semitism and the expulsion of Jews from their homeland is important to grapple with in the sense of a practical, legitimate, where do people go in the moment? Something that was answered in the moment, but now needs to be reconsidered, is like what pushes Arab countries to expel Jews in the timeline that they did? And what politics do we still uphold as Jews in the diaspora or not that reinforces incidentally that ideology that we all know some countries are going to force their Jews out. So we have to provide a place for them to go is, I think, like an interesting uh, thing we still hold on to.
4: This conversation highlights a lot of the tensions that do exist within. The Jewish community as a whole outside of Zionism, where we start to get into the nuance that exists and the tension that exists between anti-Zionist folks and liberal Zionists or whatever other terminology people choose to use, which I will say my final caveat on that is I think if we're getting bogged down in the language that we choose to use to identify ourselves, what are we doing? You either decide that you're going to be a liberal Zionist or you can decide that you're going to oppose Zionism and be anti-Zionist. Oh, I don't know that the struggle for Jews right now should be in that. It feels like we should just be like, if we're going to oppose Zionism and we're going to oppose genocide, let's do that with our chest, or let's do nothing at all and be complicit.
1: I, d- I think I agree. I think when we think about the language we use, it, it is less important than the actual actions that we take. But I do think the question of like how we wrestle with anti-Zionism is very real, and I think. Jesse made the point of where the struggle for us is not in Palestine, it's in our own communities. And I think that's really important. But I also, when I was in Palestine, I met a few people that were actually going to talk to a few of them who started Compass Media. It's a Russian language media collective that's based in Palestine, based in Israel-Palestine. And a few of the people I met who are activists from this are one of them is a Belarusian activist who in 2020, after the uprising against the dictatorship there was crushed. He had nowhere to run besides Israel because, as I mentioned, we live in a world of really strict border regimes. So I think when we think about it, there is for some people, and of course, he actually doesn't, he never applied for Israeli citizenship. He's only there as a resident because he hopes to actually return to Belarus and actually be able to be part of that struggle. But at the same time, I think when we think about the particularity of Jewish politics versus a universal Jewish politics, I think it's really concrete where There actually is a practical reason people are drawn to Zionism because they do see, oh, there needs to be a place when people have nowhere else to go. But at the same time, while we would say we're diasporist is because we actually think it's important to recognize that this is something that should be not, people shouldn't just have one place to go. They should be able to go anywhere. They should have a choice in that. And Zionism is so problematic because it says actually Jews only have one place to go. And it actually links to anti-Semites who say Jews have to go there because we don't want them there. Or for even like Christian theological regions, we believe once all the Jews go there, the apocalypse will come, which is just such a grim worldview. But yeah, I don't really want to dwell on this too much, but I think it is important to really think about this because there are many ways that we actually engage in anti-Zionist politics and struggle. And I think when we think about where we root our own politics as like American Jews, i agree we need to root our politics where we live, doikite, fierceness. But also like I think there is valid ways that people can choose to wage that struggle in Palestine because it is much easier to build real concrete solidarity with Palestinians in the West Bank when you're actually there and able to put your body between them and vicious settlers. And there are real questions about the ethics and the morality of how to do that. But at the same time, I think it's a valid way to wage the struggle. And I think it's really important to think about how these different angles of struggle can complement each other in ways that are respectful of the particularities of individuals doing this.
5: When I was involved in some Palestine solidarity organising at university, I remember a conversation that I had with a, a Palestinian friend of mine that lives in Nablus or lived for a certain time in, in Nablus in the West Bank. And sort of this, the point at one point came out is: Are there any Jews that live in Palestine that don't count settlers? And he said, yes, they do. There are Jews that live near Nablus. Uh, He didn't mean settlers. Does anyone know who he's talking about? Samaritans. Samaritans a small community of a few hundred people that live on a well, Mount Gerizim is their holy mountain. Part of them live there, part of them live in uh, Holon near Tel Aviv. Uh, but that's an example of a, of a Jewish. In, in the, they're not; they don't consider themselves Jewish in the same halachic way. But the Palestinians consider them to be Jews, and so it's interesting to see that they don't consider that community to be a problem because they're not involved with them in a sort of colonial basis. A colonial basis but yeah definitely let's let's move on to anti-zionist religious and communal practices in in new york
1: yeah i really do want to hear about your ritual space and stuff because i think that is really important as well when we think about judaism and the zionism that gets inherently implied within judaism often
4: yeah i think going back to an earlier conversation that we were having around anti-zionism for us and what we would hope anti-zionism is for most people, is about, while it's about destruction, it's also about creation and creating Jewish ritual space, creating Jewish spiritual space outside of anti-Zionism. I think at its core, what that looks like is just being explicit about the kind of space that it is, and that it is an explicitly anti-Zionist normative space, which is, I think, most Jewish American spaces are normatively. Zionist. If you walk into any synagogue, any Jewish community center, the expectation is Zionism. There's an Israeli flag on the Bema. There's, I guess we don't call them mission trips as Jews, but that's what it is. Mission trips to Israel or advertising about birthright and stuff like that. And so the importance of anti-Zionist Jewish spaces is to just simply have Jewish spaces where the expectation is not Zionism, where you're entering the space and you know that the space normalizes a Judaism outside of Zionism, like normalizes anti-Zionist Judaism, and that the people in the space are either going to be on the same page as you, or if for any reason they're there and they're not on the same page as you, they are aware that the expectation of the space is anti-Zionism. I think this also speaks to the fact that the spaces that we aim to create are queer. And when we say the space is queer, that's not to say that people who are not queer are not in the space or are not allowed in the space, but the expectation is to create spaces that are in opposition to the mainstream where in the mainstream you enter a space it is not expected that when you walk into a space it is queer or the majority is queer or that everyone is on the same page about queer when you enter a space that we create or normatively queer space that is the expectation you're walking in you're like i am safe as a queer person in this space because the majority of other people in this space are also queer Or at least have an understanding of my life experience. And the reason that it feels so important to create those spaces is because they don't exist. Um, Or when they do, they exist few and far between. One of the only anti Zionist shuls in the United States is in Chicago. There are a few popping up in other places or trying to pop up in other places, but SEDEC in Chicago is only explicitly anti-Zionist shul. And so groups like Making Menches or groups like Mending Minion, which is based in Boston. I also know that there's like a Nashville anti-Zionist collective and North Carolina anti-Zionist Jewish group. I don't have the names off the top of my head. So They exist. But yeah, these are few and far between. And that's not representative of the amount of anti-Zionist Jews that exist in the United States. I think such a tool of Zionists is to act like anti-Zionist Jews are a fringe minority population. Um, And that's just simply not the case at this point. Like we've seen in the thousands, the amount of anti-Zionist Jews that have come out publicly very clearly on their politic in the last few months. And it's important that we can also ground that in Judaism. I think something that is missing in a lot of solely political-focused anti-Zionist organizations, which are important and I think have a place in the movement, but something that's equally as necessary are organizations that bolster Judaism that exists outside of anti-Zionism. So actual ritual and spirituality and Jewish education that is grounded outside of Zionism. I think that's why for us, A key piece of our work is to create those spaces and that community. And something I hear time and time again in those spaces that I've created is gratitude from people in those spaces who are so grateful that these spaces exist and being like, it's so refreshing to come into a space and be able to observe and be Jewish and observe Shabbat or observe Hanukkah with people who I know are actively in opposition to genocide. And I don't have to worry about what someone's gonna say and be on edge the whole time about what the person in the front of the room is gonna say next, because I know we're on the same page. Because I think what so many Jewish people love about Judaism is the spiritual elements, is the ritual element, is the community element. And I think so many people end up having to take a step back from those elements that are so powerful because they don't see examples of those elements existing outside of Zionism. And so to begin to envision them for ourselves and put them into practice for ourselves allows for a Jewish future that otherwise might not exist if we only ground Judaism in Zionism that's why we've created those spaces um and that's what we mean when we say we are creating anti-zionist jewish ritual space or spiritual space
3: it is a struggle in that sense as well because there's so many other identities that people hold that get tied up in anti-zionist and spaces without zionist frameworks because for example like A lot of people, their go-to reaction to, oh, let's do an anti zionist thing is they want to do a song or something in Yiddish. And then suddenly we've realized we've composed an entire evening full of Yiddish songs, which is awesome, and Ashkenormative. And then we've alienated a bunch of other people. Or there are ways that we can't always provide accessibility in the ways we want. Or we want to include more religious elements to a service, like including... Mournish Kaddish, of course, but say someone wants the Amidah in there, and then there are people who have experienced real religious trauma in their Zionist synagogues. They've come from our day schools, and they're like, I actually don't feel comfortable having a full Maariv service in the middle of this event. So there are ways that we have to negotiate a lot of other things that come along with planning anti-Zionist spaces that I think Zionist spaces don't even consider because Zionism goes hand in hand with so many of these other things. Like who cares if it's Ashkenormative? Who cares if it's Karl Bach? Who cares if people are traumatized by it? So I think a lot of underselling how much work they do to go like it goes into this because it's consideration of so many other layers of oppression that goes hand in hand with the, the anti-zionist framework
4: the reason it's so hard for so many anti-zionist spiritual orgs or anti-zionist jewish organizations that focus specifically on spirituality and ritual the reason it's so difficult for us to do the work we want to do is because there is not funding for that work. (laughs) Like Jewish funding is coming from Zionist organizations. So if we want to stand by our politics, A, we don't want to accept Zionist funding, but B, Zionists don't want to fund anti-Zionist Jewish ritual. And funding is such a barrier to doing that work and having access to funding in the form of private donors or grants just... Is so much more difficult for anti-Zionist Jewish organizations doing the kind of work that we and so many other incredible anti-Zionist Jewish organizations are doing.
1: I think that's really important. Funding is so important, even if we're anti-capitalist. The more you organize, the more you realize, oh, crap, we actually do need to have the resources to sustain this work, because otherwise you're going to get completely burnt out. Without actually being able to fund... Keep doing this and feed yourself, which is such a shame to actually have to deal with. But we do, unfortunately, live in a capitalist world. And you do have things like Patreon, which we've recently started doing, which allow people to just go with directly from small donors and people actually wanting to engage with this. But you also do have some of the bigger funds. As you were saying, most of them are Zionist. You have the Jewish National Fund, which is like the central Zionist fund. Then you have the New Israel Fund, which is like liberal Zionist. And then you do have the Jewish Liberation Fund. The Jewish Liberation Fund is actually anti-Zionist, non-Zionist. But of course, when we're talking about this being a minority, it's going to have a lot less resources than these and not able to make as many large donations or large grants. And you do have, I'm looking at their list of grantee partners, and you do have things like Zedek Chicago, Jewish Voice for Peace, Jews for Racial Economic Justice. You do have the desire to have this sort of institutional uh, infrastructure that's needed to actually support a thriving movement, but it's not going to have the resources that it does because it's not Zionist. It doesn't have the money that these larger, really wealthy, it's a question of power. It's when you do have wealthy Jews, they're almost always going to have business interests that are tied to Israel and other that are just enmeshed within the capitalist system. They're not going to want to actually push against these things in the way that we might be begging them to. And of course, we're not going to win that on a grounds of just ideas because as like scientific socialists, as materialists, we understand how important material relationships are and how that is going to be the driving incentive for most of these large wealthy donors. And we're not going to be able to do that. Yeah, no, I think this has been a really wonderful conversation. There was one other question I wanted to just touch on to wrap up. And it's said that the Zionists often contend that Zionism is like the liberation movement of the Jewish people, which is absurd if you ask me, especially for those of us in diaspora, and while we as diasporists would contend that diasporism could offer to be a liberation movement for the Jewish people in solidarity with all the liberation movements of all the peoples of the world, I wonder, how do you see anti-zionism or How do you think anti-Zionism might liberate Jewish communities where they live?
3: I am working in a lot of Jewish institutions, so I feel it every day, but... A lot of what is beautiful about Jewish institutional life is the type of community and long standing relationships that develop through there. You know, there are people who come to your naming or your bris or whatever, who then watch you become Barabat Mitzvah and then watch you get married. And there's this community that feels like family in another level that people really resonate with and can support a lot of people throughout their lives. When it is tied to Zionism, people feel betrayed and hurt. And I've seen this so many times that people say, like, I thought I was really close with my Hebrew school teacher. I thought this, whatever. And they lose connection. And that leaves them to leave the synagogue or to leave Judaism altogether because they say, like, I was Mm -hmm. lied to whatever. It's not really aligned with my politics. If we removed Zionism from Jewish institutional life, which cannot happen in its current state, we would have to really dramatically change what Jewish institutions look like. We would be able to build sustainable Jewish communities that encourage dissent, encourage questioning, encourage growth and expansion into anti-oppressive movements of partnering with other coalitions that could actually get a lot of shit done. Like another example, not that I'm a big like electoral politics person, but the Green New Deal keeps getting sabotaged all the time by Zionists because they're like, oh, we hate all these other things that go with the Green New Deal. And we could get into that at a different time. The ways that Zionist lobbying destroys coalition building in the United States is something that impacts Jews everywhere. So I think there are ways that it can impact Jews on an an individual level, like people feeling more connected to their communities and feeling that their places of worship could be more aligned with their politics and feel like a, a place where they can develop and grow and really thrive as Jews. And from an institutional and like larger national level, we will find liberation when we can one, reliably build with other coalitions and not sell them out every time that we think we're actually building with them. But then two, dismantle these other systems that are keeping us oppressed and really fight for the things we want to see beyond Zionism. We have different approaches to this, but I think dismantling Zionism is that first huge hurdle to getting a lot of the other justice movements that we want to see achieved.
4: I just think in, in so many ways, what of course all of us know to be true is that Zionism is the opposite of Jewish liberation. Like it's completely antithetical to Jewish liberation. And so just based on that alone, if anti-Zionism is in opposition to Zionism, then if Zionism is in opposition to liberation, anti-Zionism would be in support of liberation. But outside of just that mathematical Olympics I think anti-Zionism allows Judaism to thrive without caveat in a way that Zionism does not. Like Zionism is full of caveats and demands that Judaism only exist if it is bolstering the state of Israel and bolstering their actions. Um, And so once we move outside of that, there's just so much more opportunity for learning and community building and spiritual exploration to thrive. In a way that's beautiful. And yeah, I think Jesse, what you said is so important. Like, so many anti-Zionist Jews have this huge like separation and a lot of grief associated with the loss of their Jewish community because their politics basically forced them to lose their Jewish community because they do not have a place within that community or don't want to be part of that community, of course. And that distances them from Judaism as a whole. And so When we create anti-Zionist Jewish spaces, we that no longer has to happen. Like people can have a community that is Jewish without all the caveat, and so I think that is in our minds the ways that Jewish anti-Zionism promotes Jewish liberation.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. I also I've been working in my Jewish institution. I'm working in the community that I grew up in. And I totally agree with what you're saying, Jesse, where there is something really beautiful about the intergenerational relationships that get created in a space like that. And then I was at a huge Hanukkah celebration a few weeks ago, like 400 people were there. It was enormous. It was really great. And I was literally engaging with people of all generations. And I felt something that was really beautiful there. But then the moment questions of politics came up, it just became clear just how much it wasn't really a genuine community because of how the division is so apparent. And there was someone that I was talking to who is a Hebrew, former Hebrew school teacher of mine. And while we were being respected, it just felt like we weren't able to even talk in the same language when we're talking about this stuff. And it was very difficult to really wrestle with those those questions in a space like that, because it just feels like you don't have any power. You don't have any support in these positions. And I think it's really important to have alternative spaces while also engaging in the lower mainstream communities because I don't think we're going to be able to actually win the struggle if we don't. But I do think it's so important to have these alternative spaces so you really can be present without leaving part of you behind. Because I do feel that often when I am teaching, I have to, as much as I do inform, I'd make sure when I mention Zionism, I make sure I censure the point that it is contested in our communities. It's not something that's universally agreed upon. But even then, it feels like you have to almost self-censor. It's really difficult. You have to really pick the battles you do because it's just really hard to really be in a community where power is. Even in my community where we do have a left-wing rabbi, we can see that she's self-censoring in certain ways. That really makes it challenging and really reveals just how unbalanced the power structure really is within our communities even if you do have a lot of grassroots energy especially from the youth questioning our support for zionism and israel as it exists at the very least
5: i think it's just worth just mentioning again any sort of initiatives and any shout outs that Alana and jesse you would like to mention a final point for our listeners and then we can we can finish
3: some jewish anti-zionists who we've collaborated with in the past and who are putting out things that we agree with or that we are excited to see being put out. Rebecca Arev, who is Rebecca Arev's studio on Instagram, has been putting out some really interesting content. And of course, within our lifetime as a Palestinian organizing group in New York City, that's really been not just organizing marches, but like documenting the state violence that's being perpetrated against them in this moment in New York City in a fascinating way. Jewish Voice for Peace New York City is putting out some stuff that can be considered um, helpful. And there are many other organizations that are um, putting out cool stuff. Outlive Them and and Anarcho Fagala is always collaborating on cool anti-Zionist Jewish hangouts also as well, which is like great that we're doing that as well. And I just want to say that throughout this whole conversation, it's really hard to accept that we are centering Jewish anti Zionists in this moment. And we, Alana and I, have felt very uncomfortable with having these conversations in that sense because we don't want to just say, like, this is about us and our struggle and ooh, it's hard for us, moral issues. Like, people are dying and Israel is committing a genocide. All that being said, before you go and follow cool Jewish anti Zionists, your feed should mostly be made of Palestinians who are enduring this and Palestinians who are speaking out about the violence. Um, I know it should go without being said, but it is important.
1: Yeah, I think that's really important. And I think for us, when we think about being diasporous and seeing anti-Zionism as part of our politics, it's really about recognizing that as diasporists, that's something that is our, centering our struggle as Jews. And of course, we need to be in solidarity with Palestinians. We need to be letting them lead the movement and really on board supporting them and recognizing what role we play specifically as Jews that we can really do to support things that other people can't, because we do have a role to play that non-Jews are not able to play, especially in our own institutions, but also within the wider public discourse as well. And I think there's been so much wonderful organizing that has been really centering that with Not In Our Name. And with just the way the movement has been organizing, it's really inspiring to see, and yet there's still so much to do on it. And I'm really grateful that we could have this conversation. I think anyone that's got to this point in the conversation recognizes that we don't agree on everything. And even though we don't agree on everything, I think it's really important to have these conversations and really have the recognize and appreciate the fact that we can be in solidarity with each other and be in support of a free Palestine despite these differences. And just seeing that if we want to have a successful Jewish left or a left in general, we really need to recognize that it's okay to disagree on things and still work together. And I think as we go forward, and I really hope we continue working together and collaborating and ultimately bringing more people into trying to build uh, some better organized voice within the Jewish left that can really embrace difference and have these difficult conversations. And I really appreciate you guys for joining us today. It's been such a pleasure. I really love all the work you're doing and I think it's so fucking important. And I really hope that you keep it all up. And I'm really excited to continue working with you guys.
5: Likewise. Thank you very much.
4: Thanks, Thank you, Ben. Thanks, Zach. We appreciate you all.
1: Much love.